Welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place where we're learning to follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. I'm your host, Matthew Lewis, and I'm so glad you've joined us on the journey. Hello, friends. I hope you're doing well and that you've been enjoying the series. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about repentance, really and using Psalm 27 verse 4 as a template for that journey. Uh, If you've been with us on the journey, and repentance is very much a journey, I hope some of these thoughts on desiring the one thing and seeking God have been helpful conversation starters for you and your friendship with Jesus. Always remember, uh, you know, the Follow Podcast never seeks to have the last word on anything. We hope really to be the first word in an ongoing conversation. Um, and so we, we pray, and I pray, that these thoughts and ideas are exactly that conversation starters in, in you in your friendship with Jesus. You know, something for you and him and the people he's put in your life to talk about. Uh, and so in this episode, we're going to consider another thought from our psalm. It's 27 verse 4. And we're looking at the practice of dwelling. Uh, but before we do, I, I wanted to move straight to our Q&A space now, in the front of this episode instead of putting it in the back as we usually do, um, mostly because I think that the question we have for this episode is a helpful bridge between l- the last episode on seeking and this episode uh, into the practices and dwelling. And so today's question comes to us from uh, Judy Shaw in London. And uh, Judy is actually a part of a slowly growing group of friends who I've been meeting with for the past uh, past while. And we've been asking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth? And so you might hear more from her and a few others in the coming weeks and months here on the podcast. Anyway, Judy's question is this. Last week, we helpfully looked at our responsibility as followers to seek a hidden God who cannot be irresistible to us, or it would be against the character of love that is God. But if God is sovereign and all events are willed by him, as believed by uh, Calvin's doctrine of predestination, how much does our free will play into this act of seeking? Is the desire to seek itself predestined by God? Now, first, let me begin by saying, Judy, thank you for your question. And I think it's good that we think about these things. I know that you are definitely not alone in this question. Um, even, you know, putting the, the episode together uh, last week, I knew I was kind of moving into a little bit of uh, theological stirring. Uh, and so just to acknowledge that. Um, and I know that there would be those of you like Judy who, as soon as you heard me talking about the need to seek God and the necessary hiddenness of God, particularly that kind of language, you found all your theological boxes kind of lighting up red, you know, just like, well, what is happening here? And at the same time, I'm also aware that, you know, the follower audience is broad. There's lots of people who listen to us from all over the world. And I know that there are some people for whom this question, Judy's question, uh, literally never even registered on their radar. <laughs> In fact, uh, maybe even as you listened to the question that Judy asked, you still have no idea exactly what it means. And so what I'm going to try and do is answer this question in a way that helps everyone on that spectrum, uh, from those of you who are just exploring this idea of Christianity to those of you who have given this idea some serious thought, because I do think it's it's an important question, actually. So let's start at the beginning. 
If you are just checking out Christianity, what you need to know is that uh, the family called Christian is a very colorful bunch of people. You can imagine it's like a really, really long dinner table with Jesus at the head hosting a party. Now, at this table, you've got all kinds of uncles and aunts and nephews and cousins from all over the world. You've got everything from our Roman Catholic family with their fancy clothes and fancy words and fancy incense on one side of the table to our excited, passionate, loud, often crying, laughing <laughs> family that we call the Charismatics on the other side of the table, and then literally everything in between. So as you can imagine, it's a really, really long, big table. Now, think about the tension that so much difference can sometimes bring uh, to a table like that. I mean, just think about maybe a big family gathering that you've had in your life and what happens when your very conservative aunt gets into an argument with that one crazy uncle that we all have, right? Um, however, and this is the key, all the people that are seated at this table are seated there for one simple reason, the host. See, all the people at this table, no matter where they are at this table, they love Jesus, and Jesus loves them. And seeing as Jesus seems to be pretty committed to only having one table, instead of creating lots of small tables that cater to every preference in the family, these people are willing to tolerate one another, and sometimes, miraculously, even come to like one another, even love one another, because of their love for Jesus. And this is a miracle that Jesus seems to think so. He even prayed about it just before he died. Um, he, you see, he knew before he was going to the cross, he knew just how big this table was going to get. So he prayed that all the people who join him at the table would somehow learn to be one, even as he and the Father are one. So Jesus seems to think that if so many people with so much reason to be divided could find unity around him, then maybe the world would believe that he was the one that he said he was. Anyway, if we take a closer look at this table, so come with me on the table right now. Uh, we take a look, closer look at this table and we make our way somewhere to the middle, past the debates between the Anglicans and the Catholics about just how much incense is too much incense in a high mass. <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. Love you, my Catholic friends and Anglican friends. Um, if we go kind of to the middle of the table, uh, we're going to find a conversation going on about something called predestination and two guys called John Calvin and another one called Jacobus Arminius, right? Now, if you're just checking out the table, so you're listening and you're going, man, I don't know about this Christian vibe. It sounds like a weird family. We are very weird. And the great thing about us is Jesus, right? So if you're checking out this table and you're trying to figure out where you should find a seat, then let me just let you in on a little bit of the conversation that this part of the table is happening. Judy and, and her friends and, and the people who we love very much. We love you, Judy. Uh, what, what they are talking about. And so in very simple terms, and for those who do call this part of the table home, just give me some grace. I only really have a time for a very brief discussion of this here. So, uh, Judy, I'm sorry, we're not going to go deep, but we'll do a high overview here. Uh, basically, think about this idea, this predestination thing that Judy has raised, as a spectrum of opinion that disagrees on how much free will we actually have in choosing God. So we're talking about a spectrum of opinion, one side and the other side, that disagrees on how much, this is the key issue, free will we basically have in choosing God. So on the one side of the spectrum, you have this guy called Calvin, and on the other, and he, he has this idea of predestination. Now, and again, very superficial treatment, 
people who agree with this perspective of predestination would basically say that God has chosen in advance those people who would believe in him, the elect, and that God's sovereignty means that he wills everything and anything he doesn't will doesn't happen. And so if you end up believing in God, it is because God essentially caused you to do so. And by extension, if God has not decided that you believe in, you should believe in him, then no matter what you, you do, you won't believe in him. All right, so that's kind of that space. Now, you can understand why someone who holds this view would struggle with the idea that God is hiding and that we need to seek him. As you say, Judy, how much does our free will play into this act of seeking? Is the desire to seek itself predestined by God? So a great question coming from that side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you have those who agree more with this guy called Jacobus Arminian. And they believe in free will, and they believe in the ability of a person to choose or to not choose God. In the words of someone like John Wesley, all can be saved, all can know that they are saved, and all can be saved to the utmost. So you could see how if you don't have this underlying question about free will and your role in choosing God, then the idea of seeking is not so difficult for you. So if you're just checking out Christianity and trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, I hope that kind of catches you up to the conversation we're having a little bit. Basically, a really long table. Uh, Christianity is this really complex family of all kinds of people, uh, you know, all over the spectrum of things. The thing that unites us is Jesus. And, and those of us who are at the table of Christianity, that is really what we have in common. We love Jesus, you might want to call that table the table of orthodoxy, um, and that might be a place that those might be some healthy boundaries. But I would say, uh, in my experience, there's orthodox expression in pretty much every expression of the church, right? And so that's kind of what we're being caught up into. And, the, and this particular question that Judy is raising is this question around free will versus not free will. If we don't have free will, can we really seek God? If we do have free will, uh, what does that mean? Now, for my answer to Judy and those who struggle with this. First, I am not God. <laughs> it's important to say that. So I would only uncover you, encourage you to test and approve everything that I say, just as Judy is doing here. This is a good thing. Second, for disclosure, when people ask me where I fall on this issue, Matt, are you a Calvin person? Are you an Arminian person? Are you a predestination person? Are you a free will person? And even those sort of, I mean, if you know the nuances of these conversations, these are even oversimplifications of the idea, right? But my answer really, and this is very honest, is yes. <laughs> That's my answer, yes, yep. Uh, and this often frustrates people who are looking for clear lines on either side of the spectrum. But however frustrating it may or may not be, that is actually where I am, because I do see merit in both ideas. And I've met people much smarter than me who deeply love Jesus and who make incredibly compelling biblical arguments for both perspectives, right? So one dude's got his Bible and he's deep in there and he's going, we've got free will. Other dude's deep in there, predestination. And, uh, and both are compelling. And, and so added to this, added to this is another reason why I'm like, yep. Um, I grew up Anglican. I was a youth pastor in a Methodist church. I worked with Baptists and New Covenant people and Orthodox churches as a missionary. I planted churches as a Pentecostal, and I now serve with YWAM. So <laughs> basically, I've had a walk up and down this table that's gathered around Jesus, and I've met so many people who deeply, deeply love Jesus in a way that brings us together in spite of all the things that might keep us apart. 
so you might say for me, and I, I would describe it like this, is that I've got a really big space in my theology for mystery. And my primary concern is less about where we are at the table of Jesus and more about are we actually at the table. <laughs> and I know that different people have different ideas about what makes you at that table or not. I would just say in honesty, I've got a lot of space for mystery, partly because of my own personal convictions and partly just because of my experiences. So Judy, because I'm not specifically Reformed or uh, I'm not specifically a Calvinist, this isn't as much of a challenge for me as it might be for you, right? But that doesn't dismiss your struggle. I think there's space at the table, right? And so as a word of encouragement that might help you, I would simply leave you with two thoughts. Number one, uh, and this is how my journey looks, right? In the Bible, there's this concept of the principle of first mention. So in other words, the, the earliest space of a thing described kind of becomes the defining narrative of that issue in the scripture going forward to a large degree and again it's complexity because there is sometimes this backwards forwards conversation in the bible between things that are older and things that are newer but as a general rule this is a kind of helpful um, principle um, now uh, when we go to genesis uh, this is where we see the first mention of what it means to be human, right? I mean, a lot of people argue about Genesis and is it seven days here or this there and the, without getting too complicated, I just think that's missing the point. I think Genesis is asking or answering the question, what does it mean to be human? Who is God? Uh, why are we here? What is our purpose, etc., etc. So it's an anthropology, right? That's what it is. Um, and so, and a theology, beautifully so. And so in that expression, we see that we are made imago Dei, and that intrinsic to that imago Dei is this, uh, we're given this mandate to steward and to co-create with God. So we're given creative agency, right? Now you take that as a fundamental starting point, and then you kind of extrapolate that over the whole text. You stretch it out over the whole Bible. You get lots of instances, for example, um, Moses, praying to God and changing God's mind, essentially, interceding for the people of Israel and changing God's mind in his prayers, right? And all of a sudden, what you start to realize, if you let the whole Bible speak to the whole Bible, is that this is not um, as simple as clear and clear-cut as it would be if we only let one part of the table speak, right? And so when that happens, we have to learn to find nuance and mystery. And so that's why, for me... Um, I've got like a lot of space for mystery. I, I, I don't always have to enter into sort of the dualistic thinking of this or that. I find I'm the kind of person and my theology is such that I'm okay to live in the tension of this and that a lot of the time. Uh, and then number two, as I've walked up and down the table, right, and listened and watched, I've seen so many things. Now this speaks to your issue of, of, of seeking, right? And this is where my conviction is around seeking. I've seen a lot of things. And I've seen a lot of perspectives and underlying theologies. But here's the thing I've never seen in all my years of following Jesus and no matter where at the table I've been, I've never seen a person who has a vital, thriving, life-giving relationship with Jesus who hasn't set their heart to seek him. Never once. So it doesn't matter what their theological position is, what the underlying perspective is, I don't know anybody who has a thriving, vital, life-giving relationship with Jesus, whose heart is not set to seek him. Don't know it. And so in my experience, it is absolutely true to say that salvation, gift, grace, amen, hallelujah, a gift of God, so nobody may boast, not earned, 
etc. But I completely agree with Dallas Willard that that the gospel is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. And that intimacy, in my experience, is not automatic, uh, which is only a problem for you if you think that intimacy is the point, <laughs> which I do. And a lot of people don't, right? So a lot of people are happy to settle for a kind of um, like like a theological uh, loophole where they don't have to pursue God, don't have to seek God, and they still get into heaven. And who am I to say God is the judge of these things? I don't know. But my point is, like, even if that is true, man, you missed a, you missed a whole lifetime of knowing God. You missed the with God life right now. And I'm, I've never known anyone who lives in the with God life who hasn't sought after God. So basically, whatever your underlying theology is on the issue, whether it's God doing it in you or you choosing it with God, my question is simply this, Judy, and to everyone else listening, are you investing daily in deepening your friendship with Jesus, and are you intentionally building intimacy with Him? If so, then great. If not, then my experience would raise a point of concern, because I've just never seen an apathetic posture to God lead to the kind of eternal living that lets us experience the kingdom that is among us now. And not only have I never seen it, but I think the scripture quite clearly speaks against that kind of perspective and and toward one where Jesus says, Ask, seek, knock. If you're my friend, you'll do what I say. If you hear my words and then apply them, then you build your house on the sand. Right? It's Paul saying, I've taken hold of all that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. I've clothed myself with Christ. So the whole of the Gospels, whether you're looking epistles, Gospels, where you're looking Pentateuch, Old Testament, like every, it's just saturated. Jeremiah, if you seek and you seek me with all your heart, then you'll find me. Right? It's just like all over this 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 idea that we are to seek after God. So. Judy, I hope um, that that is helpful for you. And anybody else who was in Judy's boat had these questions. That is quite a long answer, but I thought it was worth just taking some time to cover it. all that said how do we do this (laughs) so we've said we need to seek god right last week i spoke about these two ideas um a model and a method okay i want to just highlight that again because i know you may have forgotten a model is your picture of the good and beautiful life as in as as embodied by jesus okay well first let's take a step back a a model is just your your picture of the good and beautiful life right and what we want to do as people who are seeking jesus is make sure that jesus (laughs) is our picture of the good and beautiful life and not our favorite celebrity and then the second second thing we said was uh, you need to have a method or what is your working theory of change okay and what we've said is, uh, and I love this, this, is, this comes to us from John Mark Comer. If you want the life of Jesus, you must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Oh, come on. Thank you, John Mark. If ever you listen to this, I doubt you will. You're a busy man. But that right there is on the money. If you want the life of Jesus, you must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about holy habits or practices or disciplines, whatever you want to call them, that we see in the life of Jesus that he engaged in every day that helped, that that made Jesus Jesus, right? Because he was fully God 
and fully man. And he comes not only, he, he comes to show us how to be human. Remember, Jesus is the alpha human. He's the firstborn among many brothers. So he's, he is the reclamation of what Adam, that there was the, fir- the first Adam and the second Adam. That, I mean, I don't want to get too complicated now, but this is, Jesus comes to show us what it means to be human. And so if we want the life of Jesus, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so what we're doing today is we're looking at one of the holy habits that Jesus had and uh, that we see in the psalm and that we ourselves must adopt if we want to enter into his eternal living. And that is the habit of dwelling. And so with that said, let's get into our song. Wherever you are, as you're listening to this podcast, um, maybe pause. Uh, if you can't, just take a moment of silence and quiet at this point. Just pause until you can. If you, if you can, if you're washing the dishes or something, maybe just stand for a minute. If you're driving, maybe just take a deep breath in. That's okay too. Uh, maybe you're at your desk. Just pause what you're doing. Put your pen down or, or just close your laptop or whatever as long as it doesn't interrupt the podcast. Just enter into a moment of silence. I'd like us to embody the practice we're going to talk about just for a second. And so just for a moment, take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. And simply allow yourself to be here. Then as I read the psalm slowly, let the words wash over you. And whatever God would highlight to you in this reading, just hold on to that. One thing I desire, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing upon his beauty, inquiring in his temple. Here's what stands out to me from that song. In these words, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That was David's one desire, right? To be where God was. And not just for a moment, this is key, all the days of his life. To, to be in the house of the Lord, not for a second, not for a minute, not for an hour, not for a month here or a week there, but all the days of his life. Now, this leads us to a question as we unpack this for ourselves. In David's time, the house of the Lord was an actual place. You see, he grew up with stories of tabernacles and tents uh, and of meetings and um, 
he had uh, this place in the tent of meeting uh, called the Holy of Holies in his culture. And this was like a special place where God's, uh, where the glory of God or the presence of God was. And there was only this one guy, a high priest. He was the only one who could go in there. And so, of course, da- David being David with, with the heart after God that he had, he, he wasn't happy with God living in tents, right? So, so hear this, David's frame of reference when he's talking about the house of the Lord, he's coming from a culture and a place and a family where God's lived in tents, tabernacles, right? Um, and there's a holy of holy. That's where the glory of God lives. But now he he wants to build God a house. He's tired of God living in a, a tent. He wants to build God a house. He wants to build God a temple. And so even though this is a misdirected desire, we see how God kind of corrects him when he's like, man, you know, the heavens are my throne, the earth is the footstool. Like, what house would you build for me? Essentially, what would you give me uh, that, that I don't already have, right? But David's not deterred by this. He still goes on. And he wants to build this temple for God. He wants to upgrade God, essentially, as accommodation, right? Uh, and so he, he sets about this. He doesn't finish it. Um, and eventually his son goes about finishing the temple. And so it's important to get into the mind of David here. When he is thinking of the house of the Lord, he's thinking of an actual place, a tabernacle, and then this temple that he wants to build for the Lord. But the question we have is, where is this for us? Are we the same as David? Is the house of the Lord a church? Do we go to the house of the Lord when we go to church? Or is the house of the Lord a place, a specific location? Do we have to go somewhere to seek God, to dwell with God? Now, let me, let me say, I have a healthy theology of place, right? I spent some time in the woods in Herrenhut, Germany. If you know a little bit about this town, it's the home. It's the birthplace of the Moravian revival. And I've sat in some of the great cathedrals of Europe where the prayers of the ages seem to like drip off the walls, right? And so I think I agree with the cults in their Christianity where they talk about how some places almost seem thin. There's almost like a heaven gets a bit closer to earth in those places. So I'm about that. I've got a theology of place in that sense. But as wonderful as places like that are, and they are, they're beautiful, I want to make it clear they are only supplementary gifts to the fundamental miracle that we live in as a people who exist in the wake of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, David grew up in a culture of tents and tabernacles, where God lived in a place, right? Now, in John 1.14, we read these stunning words that the word, Jesus, if you read that in its full context, you understand it's talking about Jesus. This word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, right? Now, that word, the original language there, it actually translates as the word, Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled with us, <laughs> Uh, or, uh, or that, as uh, Eugene Peterson says, that God moved into the neighborhood. Then the same Jesus, who is now apparently a walking holy of holies, a tabernacled embodiment of the glory of God. He's bringing the sacred, what was essentially reserved for only the high priest in that cut off place from the people. He's bringing it into the secular. He's messing up all the boxes. And in John sixteen seventeen, he goes about saying, saying that uh, when he goes, it's better that he goes because then the spirit will come, the spirit that is him, that same spirit that hovered over the water in the beginning, this Trinitarian understanding. And then in John fourteen twenty, that we would be in him and he would be in us as he is in the Father. <laughs> 
And then when this Jesus dies, that curtain, right, that separated the Holy of Holies back in the tabernacle thinking, the tent thinking, the Holy of Holies from the rest of that tent, that curtain in the temple that was used to separate God from men, it's torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, God has left the building. And this truth is amplified only further and confirmed when the the fire, the image of the fire that was used uh, for the burning on the altar in the temple thinking starts burning on the heads of of the disciples at Pentecost when the spirit that Jesus had promised arrived and to declare the simple truth, right, that God is here in you and in me by the power of of the Holy Spirit. We individually and importantly, collectively, corporately, we are the house of the Lord that David so longed to dwell in. (laughs) So David had to go to a place. Now the place has come to us. Man, that's good. So now what does this mean for seeking God? Simply this, that if you really want God, you are going to have to seek him. We've said this. However, you won't have to look very far. In fact, he's waiting for you in every breath you breathe, in every step you take, in every single moment you inhabit. See, seeking God, as with most most things in the kingdom of God, is counterintuitive. You need not strive or strain or stress to seek. What you actually need to do is stop. (laughs) Stop rushing. Stop hurrying. Stop filling every second with busyness and activity. And settle into the very moment that you are in. With your heart open not so much that you might find god remember he is not lost but so that you might be found by him not so much so that you might love god remember you're not even sure how to do that very well but so that you might be loved by him and when you do when you seek him by slowing down not once or twice but as a lifestyle as david said all the days of your life here's what you'll find That the hidden God who so desperately longs to be known by you, that's why he's been wooing you with every atom of creation and with the declaration of his son. He will come running to you just as he did when he saw his lost son making his way home after his time away. If you want to seek God, you don't have to look very far because he's right here. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that but does bear fruit he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
Remember, the gospel is opposed to earning. Remain in me, but it's not opposed to effort, as I also remain in you. To remain is a choice. It's not automatic. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So how then do we seek God? One way that we see in the life of Jesus is by stopping. Well, where do we where do we see this in the life of Jesus? Well, for one thing, he's always going away to secluded places. Have you noticed that? He's always he's always going somewhere, <laughs> off by himself to pray. Uh, there's that time when he's like he's done these amazing things, and then there's these crowds, and they all want to kind of make him king, and they want to enthrone him, and he just kind of slips away, goes away to a quiet place. Right? He's always slipping away. It's as his custom. He's always going to the place of prayer. He's always going away to be with the Father. And then that decision to slow down makes him interruptible, right? So you you look at, uh, for example, he's walking and there's the woman with the issue of blood. And he's on his way somewhere, right? He's been called to go heal a girl who has died. But this woman reaches out to touch his, his cloak. His power leaves from him. And because he's not in rush, because he's attentive to the voice of God, because he doesn't do anything he doesn't see the Father doing, he's willing to interrupt the moment to see the person. And so in that moment, there's two miracles that happen. One, the woman is healed, but the other, she is seen. And it's Zacchaeus, right, in a tree. He's surround, Jesus is surrounded by crowds. Zacchaeus can't see Jesus, either because he's short or because Jesus is short. Not sure who. Uh, but as Jesus is coming in the crowd, he's slow enough and attentive to the things of God enough that he's able to see Zacchaeus in a tree and then be interruptible. Zacchaeus, I need to come to your house today, right? So Jesus is consistently carving out time specifically for the father he's slowing down his whole life he's not in a rush he's not a hurried person he's an intentional person and this makes him attentive to the voice of god moment by moment and interruptible in his life how do you seek god you have to slow down slow down the place of your hurried frantic life so that you can remain in him and in your remaining bear much fruit the miracle of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord of a kingdom that is at hand. And you and I don't have to wait till when we die to know him. We can live the with God life right now if we'll just learn to dwell with him, to remain with him, to abide with him. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wait, 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 Matt. Are you saying if I want to seek God? I need to <laughs> I need to long to dwell in his house all the days of my life. And now because of Jesus, his house is where I am. And so what you're saying is if I want to see God, I just need to learn to be here with him. I'm saying that's exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. Which makes you wonder if it's that easy, if it's simply about learning to be here with God, why don't more people do it? And if that's what you're thinking, my simple question to you is, have you ever tried it? Just for a moment, say five minutes. 
where you just stopped everything, right? No cell phone, no radio, no computer, no music, no people. You stopped everything to dwell, abide, remain, stay in the house of the Lord that is your present moment and let God love you there. If you haven't, you should try it. (laughs) If you have, here's what you will know. This is probably the hardest thing you've ever tried to do in your life because our internal worlds are are like tightly wound springs or like overstimulated teenagers hyped up on Red Bull at a party, right? And the second, quite literally for most of us, the second, we try to slow down, our internal world, worlds rebel against it. And, and our minds are flooded with thoughts and memories and to-do lists and temptations and fears and memories and thoughts and to-do lists, right? It's like pulling the handbrake on an overloaded car, speeding down the highway, and everything in the backseat comes flying into your lap. That's what happens when you try to stop right so as simple as dwelling abiding remaining staying stopping slowing may seem the reason most people don't do it and sadly miss god is because it's very very hard (laughs) but if you want god friend you're gonna have to seek him in fact stopping is so hard in our age where busyness is a virtue and productivity is an idol that choosing to unhurry your life and prioritize dwelling with God might be equated to taking a vow of poverty to resist the temptations of wealth in previous centuries. I'm going to say that again. In previous centuries, people saw that the great temptation was wealth and how that led us away from the things of God. And so a lot of people took vows of poverty to resist that. Now, wealth is still a temptation. But is it possible that in our age, the great temptation is hurry and that choosing to unhurry your life and prioritize dwelling with God might be the same as choosing to take a vow of poverty (laughs) in our current context it is hard and it's not only hard for internal reasons it's hard for external social pressure reasons because What do you do when you've set a day aside for God and then your friends want you to come to a barbecue or a party or an experience or a thing or an event? What do you do with the FOMO that's humming under the bonnet of your life because you're so hooked on the narrative of social media that makes you feel like you're missing out on life every time you miss out on an event? And here's the thing. It is hard, but hard as it is, I'm I'm telling you, you're going to have to choose it if you want God. And if you don't, if you simply go with the path of least resistance, then slowly and sometimes not so slowly, but surely, the currents of the formation machine that is our world will bend the needle of your heart, as James K.A. Smith would say, away from the true north of Jesus, that voice that calls you in the place of your divine longing, and toward those disordered desires that will enslave you to themselves. (laughs) What do I mean here? Friends, don't be misled. Our world is not in neutral and you are not a blank slate. Everything you do does something to you. And our world is humming with a story about what is good and beautiful and most important and and what defines us and who we are. And it's possible that you might think you believe in Jesus, but you're actually living according to another narrative 
right? And so what happens is your heart gets so bent away from the things of God that eventually, like an addict, even having to set those things aside for a short time to be with God leaves you distracted and anxious and frustrated. And if you don't believe me, just try living without your phone for one day. See how long you last, right? This is imperative, guys. Slowing down may seem like a really simple thing, and it is. It is really simple in concept. But actually applying it to choose to dwell in the house of the Lord, that is now this moment by the power of the Holy Spirit, all the days of your life, it may just be one of the most countercultural spiritual moves of resistance that you choose to enter into, to abide in Him. But as hard as it is, I'm telling you, you should do it. <laughs> and not just for a moment, not just for a second. Start small, of course. You know, uh, we grow as we as we can, not as we can't, right? So, so God meets you right where you are. He's okay with that. Start small. But do set the intentions of your heart to grow into the kind of person where you can learn to abide in His presence all the days of your life. To end, I'll leave you with the words of Jesus. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so that's our episode for today, guys that you would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. And uh, if you need some help in this, like how do I apply this to my life, man? Give me some pointers around dwelling and abiding and remaining. Uh, Get in touch. I'd love to walk you through just some of the things that I do, little simple practices. uh, um, These are things that could help you. But I just wanted to use this episode to awaken you to your need to slow down. Slow down, slow down. Dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. Start with uh, small amounts of time and then like an athlete, train, get stronger. um, And stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. There's this guy, Brother Lawrence, he writes a book called Practicing the Presence of God. Uh, Beautiful. Eventually, he he called himself the Lord of all pots and pans. And uh, his whole intention was to not go a, a second without God before his mind. That was, that was his desire. And uh, his writings are just wonderful. And so I would commend that to you. Also, a lot of what I've been talking about comes from a fantastic book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Marcoma. I would encourage that to you as well. Or The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. Also fantastic. Guys, if this uh, podcast has helped you, as always, uh, please like, subscribe, share. That stuff's super helpful. And leave a review that gets it uh, in the ears of people on all the podcast platforms. Uh, that's all for this episode and we'll see you in the next episode as we talk about what it means to gaze upon his beauty that's going to be a good one thanks guys and judy hope the question was helpful and for the rest of you uh, try to dwell in his presence this week